Open your Bibles, please, to James chapter 3. I'm going to conclude this uh, brief study we've had on um, maturity, entitled When I Grow Up. And the next week we'll be getting back to uh, the Gospel of John. We'll be starting in uh, John chapter 6 next week. How many of you know who Jet Li is? Raise your hand if you know who Jet Li is. That's about what I expected. Uh, Jet Li is a uh, martial arts expert slash movie star. And he got to be a movie star because he was a martial arts expert. How many of you know what kind of martial arts he practices? Wushu. How many of you know what Wushu is? There you go. It's, uh, I think it's kind of like Kung Fu, only a different brand. You know, it's, uh, it's like you got, uh, you got uh, Southern Baptist and Northern Baptist. Well, I think you got Kung Fu and Wushu and so on, you know. Forgive me, Scott. Scott's a student of the martial arts, so I'm, I'm probably murdering that. But, but it's a very sophisticated kind of martial arts. And Jet Li um, has been a national champion a number of times in China, where that's probably not a very small thing to be. And uh, done a lot of, of, of movies. And big news this week is he's coming out with a new movie. That's not the big news. The big news is he says he's going to retire from doing martial arts movies. Well, what that means is he's not going to do any more movies about the martial arts, but he will still be doing wushu in the movies that he's in. So, so rest, uh, rest easy, Don, and others who are fans of Jet Li. What was interesting was, and, and you know, all of you have seen this kind of thing on TV where, you know, all of the, uh, you know, kicking and chopping and so on and putting your enemies down. And he said, my personal belief is this, beating up the enemy is easy. Physically, you beat them up, but to change them to become your friend is difficult, very difficult. That's why humans have a problem. Always this group of people beats up the other, then the other one tries to teach their younger generation revenge. I thought that was interesting. He says it's easy to beat somebody up, physically or verbally. It's not hard to beat somebody up, but it's hard to make them your friend those people who we have challenges with. And that's why today the title of my sermon is When I Grow Up, I Want to Get Along with Everyone. Now, I know just titling my sermon that, that is an impossible thing. I mean, I won't say impossible. In our minds, it's an impossible thing. We go, man, we just can't get along with everyone. Can we? Let's see what we can learn from God's Word today from James chapter 3. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let me paraphrase that. You think you're really smart? (laughs) Here's a test. Here's a test of your wisdom. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts... Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom, the wisdom characterized by bitter envy and self-seeking, this wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. 
Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Godly wisdom, the first thing we understand about godly wisdom, and I'm, as I use the term godly wisdom today, I'm thinking especially godly wisdom in how I see other people and how I get along with other people. Godly wisdom in terms of how I conduct myself in relationships. Godly wisdom, first of all, is not self-centered. Verse 14, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts. Maybe some of us would like to say, well, I don't have bitter envy, I just have envy. Bitter envy and self-seeking. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking, the key thing is verse 15. This wisdom does not come from God. One of the greatest challenges, if not the greatest challenge in life, is to be genuinely concerned for other people. In John chapter 13, Jesus said, this is the mark of a disciple, if he knows right doctrine. Is that, is that it? This is the way all men will know you are my disciples. If you build the biggest church building, make sure you're on the highest peak in town so that your steeple reaches taller than anybody else's steeple. And people will say, well, that church really has it together. No, what is the mark of a disciple of Christ? What? Love. Now, one of, the, one of the things we've really got to actively think about is love is not a warm fuzzy like I have for Glenn. <laughs> you know, it's not hard to have warm fuzzies for Glenn. He's a wonderful, nice man. And that's a fine thing. It's fine that when I get up in the morning, I think good thoughts about Glenn. But that's not what God's definition of love is. And I think it's put to us right here in verse 14 and 15. Sinful Interpersonal relations are characterized by self-centeredness. Godly interpersonal relations are known by their others-centeredness. That's another way to say love. The greatest example of others-centeredness is Jesus Christ himself, and we read about it in Philippians 2. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, personal ambition, putting yourself forward, or conceit, thinking you're the greatest that there is, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but even though he was equal with God, he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Think about this verse just for a minute, folks. When we read that scripture this morning from Isaiah, I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Do you know what Isaiah was looking at? He was looking at God in his splendor, God in his glory. That is the existence that Jesus had before he took on a human body, which is described by the prophet Isaiah as being nothing special. In other words, was Jesus the most handsome guy in Israel? No, he was average. 
He went from, he went from being such a, having such a tremendous uh, outward expression of his awesome person that Isaiah fell down and said, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. That's the existence that Jesus enjoyed in heaven, but what he did was take on a human body. He humbled himself. Now I ask you, is that Jesus-centered actions or you-centered actions? He had to say, you know, I, I love the worship of the angels. I love the worship of mankind, especially God's chosen people, Israel. I love that when they go to the temple and offer those sacrifices. And I love for them looking up to heaven, and they don't know it, but they're looking up at me. But I'm going to take on a human body, and I'm going to go down there and shed my blood for them. That is, others Centered, that is, others focused. That is the point of this passage. He made himself of no reputation. He was nothing special. In fact, if you read the Gospels carefully, what did the leadership of God's chosen people, Israel, what did they think of him? That's right. They said, You're, you're crazy. You're filled with a demon. They said things like that to him. But he did it anyway for you. And for me, he came in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And I want to go back here where he says, don't be selfish, be like Jesus. Let this mind be in you. Look again, please, at James 3. If you have bitter envy... And self-seeking in your heart, don't boast, don't brag, because this wisdom is earthly, sensual, demonic. There's three sources that he kind of mentions of wisdom. They're all connected. Earthly means of the, of the world of people around us. Sensual does not mean sexual. It means of our natural physical inclinations. When somebody does something that hurts your feelings, you have a natural physical inclination to do something back. And that is a sensual response to what they have done. And then there is the third source of that kind of wisdom, demonic. You ever get up in the morning and say, I'm going to play on the devil's team today. I've been on Jesus' team all week, but today, going with the red guy. Of course not. It, it's just silly to even talk that way. But it's possible for you to think and act in a way that pleases the devil. And the reason that is is because he inspires the thought patterns of the world. And one of them was immortalized in a commercial for a wonderful restaurant called McDonald's. When it said, you deserve a break today, so get up and get away to McDonald's. You deserve this. Put yourself first. God says, no, put yourself last. See, all of us would say, well, I want to be like Christ. I don't want to be like Satan. Do you remember what Satan did, how he became Satan? He was an angel of God, and he, and he got tired of his position as one who worshiped and served God, and he came up to God and he said, I want to sit on the throne of the universe. Now, is that self-centered or others-centered? Pretty simple, isn't it? 
And so what does he inspire in the world system whom God has allowed, he has allowed him to have a great degree of control over the world system in which we live? Satan is self-centered. The world system around us is self-centered. We all would say we want to be like Christ, but if you really want to be like Christ, you have to let go of your self-center and care for others. So when that person wrongs you, and you consider talking to them, you ask yourself the question, am I really going to talk to them now because I'm concerned about their growth in Christ, or am I concerned to vindicate myself? I was wronged. They owe me. Is that self-centered thinking or others-centered thinking? That's hard to take yourself out of the picture like that. When your children rebel and disobey, are you concerned for their godliness and their maturity? Or are you trying to show them who the boss is, by golly? You've embarrassed me, child! Well, that's a true statement. But are you more concerned about you or them? I would submit to you that if you don't get past your concern for yourself, you never will really help them or them, or them, or them. God says, put yourself aside and care for others. Number two, godly wisdom, first of all, is not self-centered, but godly wisdom is, look at verse 17. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. The wisdom that is from above, not the earthly sensual wisdom, it is, first of all, pure It's pure. What's it mean for our wisdom to be pure? Ephesians 4.24 says, We should be putting on the new man or the new spiritual man, new righteousness, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. The word for pure here in James is the same root word as the word for holiness. It's another way to say righteous. We need to ask ourselves the question, is what I'm about to say, is what I'm about to do righteous? Is it, is it purely spiritual or is there something mixed in with it? Our natural inclination in relationship is often to start from this point. We say, will the words I'm about to use or will the actions I'm about to use accomplish what I want to accomplish? And that's our starting point. We think, well, I want, I want my child to submit, so how can I make them submit? We don't think, I want my child to be like Christ, so how can I talk and act so they'll be like Christ? The starting point needs to be righteousness, not what I want to get done. Not what I want. A parent might say, I told Tommy I'm going to take his toys away if he doesn't clean his room. Now, I'm not really going to take his toys away. I just wanted to get him moving. Could I submit to you very kindly that that is a lie? And that is a human tool of a manipulation. It comes back to verse 15. It is wisdom, but it is earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom. The righteous wisdom says, let's tell Tommy what's right and wrong about his actions and how God, through me, is going to reinforce what is right. A wife might say, if you don't do what I want, you're sleeping on the couch tonight. Now that might get the job done. Saw a comedian last night on TV. He says, women are powerful. 
he says, uh, he says, when they say, we need to talk, we say, yes, dear. He says, but when we say to them, can you ever imagine a man going in and saying to his wife, we need to talk? She looks right at him and she says, no, we don't. And he says, yes, we do. And she says, no, we don't. And he says, well, I guess we don't. We laugh about that because there's some kind of natural way things go, but the question isn't, is it natural? And the question isn't, does it get stuff done? Does it accomplish something? The question is, is it righteous? A church member might be tempted to say, I'm not going to talk to so-and-so until they apologize to me. Now, maybe they've genuinely wronged you. Does that make it okay for you to give them the cold shoulder until they submit, until they realize how... No, that's not right. That is a human tool of manipulation. That's what, that's what uh, verse 15 is talking about. There's all kinds of human tools of manipulation. And they are somewhat effective, but they are not godly. We need to ask the question, am I starting from that which is holy and righteous so that I might accomplish what is holy and righteous? In this natural way of thinking, which is the end justifies the means, almost anything is justified. God says, no, start with righteousness. Number two, godly wisdom is, also, is not just pure, but it's also peaceable. And that's what he says here. The wisdom that is from above is first of all pure, then number two, it's peaceable. And here's where I've gotten the, the title for my sermon today. If it is possible... As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all people. When I grow up, I want to get along with everyone. Some of the people who we know that tend to get along with everyone, they don't, sometimes they're able to do that because they never deal with the problems. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're also not talking about the people who beat everyone into submission. No matter what, oh, they're going to get their way. That's not what I'm talking about. He says, though, that we should be peaceable. We should be peaceable people. And so then we ask the question, if, after we've asked the question, is it righteous, then we ask the question, is my goal to get along and work together? What's the alternative goal? The alternative goal is to get my way and show myself to be great. Or to show myself to be, have been right and to be vindicated in what I did. Rather than saying the goal here is for us to get along, especially in the church and especially in our homes, but also in the greater world, even though they aren't Christians, we can still make this our goal as much as depends on you to live peaceably. One of the places where I think of an application of this is in the church, and I, I have known several music pastors in the past um, who were great, thought of as great church musicians. Boy, they could pull a group of people together and do a show-stopping, whiz-bang music production, but they didn't make friends, and people did not enjoy the process because there was a job to be done. Er, er, er. Known a couple of them that got fired because they were so much that way. They were super talented, but did not try to be peaceable. We're supposed to be concerned with keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, according to Ephesians 4. And so if our thinking and acting doesn't include the goal of peace, it's not mature thinking. Godly wisdom is peaceable. 
Number four, godly wisdom is gentle. Gentle. This word is similar to the word for patience, the idea that we don't get in a hurry, we, we let God work, we let people work on things. And in 2 Corinthians, we read this, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now right away, if you know your Bible at all, you're thinking, now let's see, Jesus, was Jesus ever aggressive with people? Yeah, there was a couple times, wasn't there? He went into the temple, made a whip with, with ropes and drove people out. They were in tremendous sin. He looked at the Pharisees and said, you brood, or that was John the Baptist. He looked at them and said, woe to you, you whitewashed grave. But was that the normal way he worked with people who were true disciples? The thought that has come to me as I've meditated on this is the all-knowing Son of God. And so you better be real careful about making that scourge of cords and driving somebody out of the temple. You understand what I'm saying? He knew what was absolutely perfectly righteous at every moment in his life. You do not, and I do not. So should we err on the side of aggressive interpersonal relationship management, or should we err on the side of gracious interpersonal relationship management? I think we should err on the grace side, not backing away from what needs to be done, but also not being known as an aggressive, harsh person. Listen to what Paul said, we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Does a loving mother shout at a baby, hurry up and learn to walk? Come on! What do you mean you're only six months old? Get with it! What would you call that mother? Harsh? Crazy? I mean, whatever, you know, yeah, we laugh. We ever do that with a new Christian? We ever do that with a younger Christian, with a less mature Christian? We lean over and shout at him. The Apostle Paul, how mature was the Apostle Paul compared to the new Christians that he was leading to Christ? He said, I was gentle among you. I was gentle among you. Could I, could I suggest something to you? And this would really apply to the home because we tend to somehow let things go in the home that we don't outside the home. If you're having a shouting match, you are using a human tool of manipulation, not a divine, patient trust in God to change minds and actions. Gentleness. Who is the person who changes minds? Is it you? Or is it God? Well, if it's God, then what should I do to cooperate with God's mind-changing program? With God's action-changing program? I should be a person of the Word so that as I am talking to my children, to people in the church, to people out in the world, the wisdom that I use comes from here. You know, in your workplace, you might not quote chapter and verse, but you can still use God's truth and act on God's truth and act like God's truth. I, one of the questions I was asked frequently 
in my, in my work as a police chaplain, they say so-and-so has, has died, and we just can't tell this person. We can't tell. We just can't. You know, how are we going to tell them? And I, this is what I always said. You know, I believe we should always speak the truth in love. Well, was that my wisdom or God's? That was God's wisdom. I just didn't say it. It came from Ephesians 4. And I would just try to help them understand the wisdom. I said, you know, here's why, you know, sooner or later and this and that. And they go, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, that, that sounds good. Do you know why their mind changed? Because it was God's truth. Not because I'm such a smart guy. And it's the same thing I did with my kids. And I still do with my kids or anybody else. Say, this is what God says. gentleness, we can afford to be gentle if we're using God's truth. Now that doesn't mean we don't spank our children when they need a spanking. It doesn't mean we don't rebuke a wayward Christian when they, you know, when they need a rebuke. But it means that our normal tone, our normal way is a gentle way. Isn't that God's way with us? Does God spank you with a two-by-four the first time you take one step in the wrong direction? Does he just beat you over the head every time you, you do that sin that you struggle with so much? Or does he hear your confession and forgive your sin and you start all over? Somehow we've got to mirror that kind of gentleness. That's the gentleness of Christ. Godly wisdom is gentle. Number five, godly wisdom is willing to yield. This is an interesting, an interesting word, an interesting phrase here. If you have the King James, it says, uh, easy to be entreated. In the New King James, it says willing to yield. It, it literally means something like this, willing to be persuaded. It actually is the, uh, a word for obedience over here on the end of the phrase. And the idea is, is that if somebody comes along to you and really has wisdom that they're sharing, that you are willing to be persuaded. Let me put it real simply. Do you have an open mind? In the right kind of way. Open-mindedness within the parameters of Scripture. I heard two fellows debating whether it takes more gas to keep a car running or to shut it off and start it up repeatedly. They were two police officers. Well, one of them was, was a chief and the other one was a volunteer. This was many years ago and it wasn't me. And... Uh, they're having this debate, and I thought, you really think that it's going to take more gas to start it up and turn it off than just leave it on? I thought, you're thinking about a diesel truck. Maybe you're thinking about a diesel truck. It's better for a diesel truck. Anyway, they're having this argument, and neither one of them were very open-minded. I had my own opinion, but I just stayed out of it and watched the, you know, what went on there. It was amiable, but stupid. <laughs> Could I challenge you to open your mind up enough to where if people come with facts and truth, that you can be persuaded? To your kids. Remember when I preached to the kids a few weeks ago and Daniel, as a person under authority, he came along and said, hey, here's a, here's a thing I'd like to try. Would you be willing to try it? Parents, we can afford to be open-minded and try some things and be flexible. It is godly to be willing to be persuaded. 
My mind's made up. Saw a character in a movie. She said, I've counted to three, and I've said my piece and counted to three. That's it. There's no, no change in her mind. Boom, it's done. That's not a virtue. It's a virtue to be easy to be persuaded. Our natural inclination is to get wrapped up in the winning and losing. And we think, well, if I, you know, if I say, well, I think you're right about this, then that means I lose. Let's go back to rule number one. Are you self-centered or other-centered? What are you really concerned about? Are you really concerned that they grow up or that we grow up in Christ? Or are you concerned about winning? Winning. Number six, godly wisdom is merciful. Merciful. Look what he says there. In fact, he doesn't just say merciful. He says it a little more in a little more extended way. It is full of mercy. Full of mercy. Mercy means to withhold something out of kindness. You know, when we think of, of the mercy and grace of God, we'll look at a text here. The merciful idea is the idea that we deserve to go to hell and God has withheld that. He does not sent us to hell. He has given us salvation instead. He's given us that gracious gift. You, he hath made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy. Do you understand what that means? God isn't a miser with the mercy. He is up in heaven going, man, I just want to forgive your sins. He's not up in heaven with his hand held up like when a fly is crawling up and you got to hold your hand real still and as soon as he moves, whack, you get him. God's not like that. He's up in heaven going, man, come on, come on, come to faith in Christ. I'm waiting to forgive your sins. And he's doing things to bring you to that point. And as a Christian, he's doing things to get you to come around and, and confess your sins so he can forgive and cleanse and things can be right between you. He is full of mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Are you full of mercy? Here are some times when you need to be. There are times when people around you have a great big I told you so coming. They did something stupid. Or maybe years ago they've done stupid things and now they've changed and you just want to say, oh, I told you so. I used to tell you that all the time. you know." And that brings us right back to rule number one, doesn't it? Am I concerned for my own vindication? Or am I concerned, is my soul concerned that this person grow up in Christ? <clears throat> parents there will come a day lord willing if you've done your homework <laughs> when your children will do and say what you have wanted them to do and say all along and you will be sorely tempted to say well that's what i always said 
Again, what matters? All that matters is that your children are walking with the Lord. Mercy takes us right back to rule number one. It doesn't matter who or what or how. What matters is that people are growing up in Christ and getting right with Him. I don't matter in this process. Others do. Number seven, godly wisdom is full of good fruits. What are the good fruits? Well, one of the places we read about good fruits is here, and you're familiar with this verse. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are good fruits. If your wisdom is not producing that kind of character in you and in others, your wisdom may not be godly wisdom. Number eight, godly wisdom is impartial. Let's look at the verse again. Full of mercy, full of good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, without partiality. Turn back just a page with me in your Bible, at least in my Bible, to James chapter 2, James chapter 3, excuse me. Let's try it again. James chapter 2, verse 1. I was right the first time. James 2, 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Do not hold that faith with partiality, or we would use the word prejudice. For if there should come into your assembly a man with a gold rings, a fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit by my footstool. In other words, sit on the floor. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves, and you have become judges? The word for partiality actually means to pass judgment, to make a judgment. Have you not become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. You do, not, do, you not, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. And you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever shall keep the law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. Godly wisdom is impartial. Now I know you, I, I, I think you know this, but I'm going to say it again anyway. There is no acceptable level of prejudice in Christianity. See, a lot of times we'd say, well, I'm against prejudice, but... This person or these people, they're really bad. God says we should not prejudge anyone. That's what the word partiality means. To make a judgment. I like these people, I don't like those people. There is no racial prejudice, as in what color are you, that is acceptable. There is no ethnic prejudice that goes beyond color to say how white are you. We don't have it anymore, but years ago in this country, if you were Irish or Norwegian or Swedish or Scottish or some of that, people you know, separated from one another over those kind of identities, even though they're all, in today's world, all white. No class prejudice is acceptable to God. We may look around at people that are less educated or uneducated or not very civilized in the way they act and be prejudiced against them. 
Or we may have social prejudice. Some people act cool, some people don't act cool. According to our standards, a godly parent does not have a favorite child or a least favorite child. My children will sign a card, your favorite child, when they send it to me. Especially a couple of them. <laughs> we said yesterday, we're gonna, we were with our, our son and his wife yesterday, and we said we're going to get a trophy. It's going to say favorite child, and it's going to be a traveling trophy. And if you do something really good for me, I'm going to give it to you. And then when the next one does something really good, I'm going to call you up and say, you've got to mail it over to so-and-so. Yeah, they reacted the same way. <sighs> Silly. We're just joking around. It may take discipline as a parent for you not to favor one child over another. But you've got to have it. You can't judge and say, this one's my favorite and that one is, my, is not. Godly wisdom is impartial. It may take you a lifetime to love without partiality, whether it's your family or the church or the broader world, but that is God's standard. The last one on our list is that godly wisdom is sincere. They use the negative side of this command in the scripture. I've put it in the positive. He says that godly wisdom is without hypocrisy, which means to be sincere. The actual word in the scripture means to be unfeigned or unfaked. The word hypocrite is actually a transliteration from a Greek word, hypocrite. And it was the name for an actor in a Greek stage play. In a Greek stage play, you might have two actors, and they would do all the parts. And the way they would make themselves into a different character would be by holding a mask up in front of their face that looked different. And they were, they were making, you know, here, here I'm a man, maybe I put a woman's mask in front of me, and I, I'm changing my identity by putting a mask on. And so that word comes into our, our English usage the idea that people will appear to be one way, but in reality they are another way. That is hypocrisy. Mature Christians are sincere, open, with no hidden agendas. And that's how God wants us to relate to one another. Now, um, that's a tall order. That is a tall order not just because it's eight feet high on the screen. But that is a summary of how God wants us to relate to one another. We are, we are very much enjoying participating in our kids' lives from some distance, watching what they do. They're doing good things. They're making good choices. That's great fun. But you and I know that every child exasperates you at some point. And what do you do? You say, let me pack your little bag, Johnny. I know you're five years old, but you'll be going somewhere else. I don't care where. You just get out this door and walk down this street, and I'll see you when you're better. No, of course we don't do that. We think about it. Especially when they're maybe 15 or 25, <laughs> we think about it, but we don't. And why don't we? We don't because we're family. And you don't just cast family members out. 
There may have to be some tough love. There may have to be some, some punishment. There may have to be some apology. Absolutely. But you don't cast them out. You don't cut them off because they're family. It is your responsibility. It is your privilege. And you hope that, that if you do your work long enough, you will get to a point where there really is a great family relationship. May I remind you again today that we are family. And we need to treat one another in that same way. We need to not pack a little bag and say, there's the door. Go, go up the Lutheran church. Go on down the congregational church. We'll see you. No, we have to work. We have to do this. And we have to do it constantly and consistently. It has to be a test for me about me. Not a test for me about you. Not something I can point to and say, hey, you're not living the way Pastor Dave preached on Sunday. You get right. No, it has to be a test for me about me. And if all of us apply this test to ourselves, we will get along in this family. And we will grow up together. Heavenly Father, help us to live this out. Sometimes it's really easy to get along with our families and sometimes it's not both our family at home and, and our family at church. Father, help us to never let go of your standard, of your instruction, of your plan. Help us to love each other in a truly godly way. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand.